Rosie. She's not my daughter, she's my spiritual daughter. Everybody know Rosie? Rosie's been through some tough times, but she just got a major job upgrade. So she was sharing that she just got a huge job So I was telling her positions, promotions, provisions, resources of every kind. Hey, we're doing a series called I had to We're doing Tale of Two Prophets. And what we're doing is we're studying, we've been going through the, the miracles of the life of Elisha and Elisha, and we are back in Elisha's life. And just by way of setting the, the uh, background up for you a little bit, uh, the times and the seasons that this is taking place in, it's taking place in the nation of Israel. And at this time, at this season, there's an army, or there's, a, there's an empire called, if I say, Assyria. Assyrians, yeah, so right. so not the Assyrians were ruling. They had come into the north, or the, the nation of Israel itself had divided. That's the most important thing to know. The north had divided from the south. And the reason that they had divided, one of the reasons that they had divided was David's grandson. His name was Rehoboam, so you can say that with me. Rehoboam. Rehoboam. Right. So Rehoboam was a wicked guy. Well, he wasn't really a wicked guy, he was just young and inexperienced. And what he did when he took the throne, so he was Solomon's son, right? So Solomon's son, Rehoboam, took the throne. And when he took the throne, he was, um, he kind of got rid of all of the senior council. So all the older guys and all the older people that had experience, that had kind of lived life, had made the mistakes, and had learned from the mistakes, are like, look, man, don't do that, do this. Your dad did this, he was wrong, he learned from it, don't repeat your father's mistakes, they were all telling him that. They were telling him, go easy on the people, because Solomon had taxed the people heavily to build the temple. Solomon had built the temple, he put a lot of burdens on the life of the people, he had taxed them very, very heavily. And so Rehoboam found the throne, and the counsel to him was, look, let the people celebrate the work of the Lord. Relieve their burden. Let it go easy for them. The temple was built, the worship was here, everything's happening. Stop, like, pressuring, don't pressure people. Let them enjoy the fruits of their labor for a while. And Rehoboam said, okay, that's cool. Then he brings in all the 20-somethings and says, what do you think? They're like, you need to be the man, man. Forget these old men. They don't know what they're talking about. You need to be worse than your father. Your father was this way, and you need to be worse. And so Rehoboam said, yeah, you need to be the man. So he got himself a big gold chain, you know, kind of like, that's awesome. And he sat on the throne, and he made it worse for the people. He afflicted the people. He put more pressure on them. But when he did that, the northern kingdom split. The people of the north said, we're not putting up with this anymore. And they, they divided, and they actually divided over worship. You can believe that. And they decided they weren't going to worship God that way. So you can almost see within the storyline that the way the leaders are going about it, they were misrepresenting God in ways where the people said, well, if that's the way the Lord is, we don't want anything to do with it. So they actually began to form their own system of worship. They divided not only from the government, they divided from the Lord himself. They established a new, a new type of religion, if you will, or a new type of worship in the north. It wasn't new, it was old, but they began to worship other gods. And when they did, the whole nation, the northern part of the kingdom, went into darkness. They had a long succession of wicked kings. And so when the wicked kings had ruled for such a long period of time, the northern kingdom found itself in poverty. The northern kingdom found itself in, uh, in oppression. So the, the nation is very poor. They're very broke. Nobody has anything. There's Famine going on because the Lord's not there. The Bible says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin reproaches every person. So when there's sin, when there's a government that divides itself, 
one of the big, you know, you guys can argue this, we can debate it, you can go up and down one right and the other sideways, but one of the reasons why this nation is blessed is it was founded in the gospel. And if you, for one reason, ever believe that this nation wasn't founded in the gospel, you clearly don't know your history. You don't know that. And most of the men that founded this country are not only believers, they were devout believers. I was invited just recently. My wife and I had an opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. Thank you, Jesus. We invited about 120 people, no more than probably more like 80. And we were invited to do a pastor's briefing in the capital of Washington. And so we were invited not just to a luncheon, but we were invited into a tour of the capital. And uh, wall builders, Dave Barton and his son Tim, they run a great ministry out of Texas. And just insane, knowledgeable guys. You want to know anything about spirituality in this country? You want to learn something about your about the founding fathers and about your history? These guys are off the chart. I mean, they're like a light switch. You just think, I mean, it's just there. It's flipping the switch. So tell me about, uh, tell me about the brush. I'm just tell me, you know, the. the Tell me about uh, Benjamin Franklin. They just run the run the table right? and I was absolutely blown away at the misinformation that has been given to us regarding not just our faith, especially this generation. And he says, "How do we know that this is true? Because we have the original documents. So everything that they teach you, and everything that they're going over with us, is coming from the original writings of the founding fathers." wasn't coming from somebody who just reinterpreted it and said it's this way, or, you know, revisionist. They actually had what they had written. They actually had the, the, the laws that they were passing and the decrees that they were passing. They used to hold church in the Capitol building. In the Capitol building. And they would not allow church service to go less than two hours. Mm. If a pastor spoke less than an hour, they wouldn't invite him back. That's true. They wouldn't invite him back. Here, we're like, come on, pastor. You know? They're like, man, he only spoke for 40 minutes, man. He doesn't know anything. Get us a guy that can speak for an hour. That's true. So all these things, this country is blessed because of the foundation that we've laid here. You know, we're trying to revise that and, and, and all these different crazy things. And yeah, I realize that's a cultural reality, but that doesn't take away from the truth of what this country was founded upon and where this country was established from. And there's lots of debates on that, but there's 100% there's truth there. So I encourage you to do a little work on it. You'll see that this country is in holds a place of preeminence in the world, not because of our system of government. It's not a great democracy in the United States. I mean, watch, watch our news and you can tell that our great democracy is pretty much dysfunctional most of the time. So it's not our system of government that actually does it. There's a blessing. This, this country was invoked in a covenant that was made with the Lord. And are there injustices? Yes, there's injustices. Are there unrighteous things? Yes, there's unrighteous things. But half the truth has never been told. Never been told. So I encourage you to do the research. I encourage you to look at it. I encourage you to go to all the site. You know, and I mean, I can literally do a sermon on just what I learned there. It's just, I was blown away. And I was also blown away by the fact that there are so many godly men and women that are serving in our Congress that do it as a vocation. They do it as a calling. They're not doing it out of selfish ambition. Two guys, we sat there in front of the, the whole thing, we probably had 15 congressmen and senators come up and, um, and talk and share and ask questions, answer questions. And uh, two of them quoted Acts 20. They didn't even know each other. They just came in the room. Two different congressmen quoted Acts 20. I did not count my life here to myself, only when I finish the race. And they, and they used it as a context to say, look, I'm not here for me. I'm here because God's called me here. And I don't count my position to be, you know, I'll risk my position, I'll risk my seat. If these are the things that are going to be. And I was just, I literally had to be there. And I was trying to process what went on that day. And as I started processing what I, was, what I had learned, and what I had received from these people, these men, 
I try to, you know, it's called, it's called um, an after-action report, and I encourage you to do that. Meditate on what you learn. So many times we hear things and we learn things, and we never process what we learn. Therefore, the knowledge becomes unfruitful because we never really process anything that happens to us. When God, when you have an encounter with the Lord, process that. When the Lord gives you revelation, begin to process that. Meditate on it. Hear, hear different things about it. That way the knowledge becomes fruitful. So I received all this stuff, and I was just kind of like meditating, and I was honoring God. I was like, God, Lord, what an amazing opportunity. That's so amazing. And um, little did you, I'll just tell you, you guys are right for people, okay? I know I'm talking now. I'm just like, boy. 1130, I feel like I'm in my living room. I feel like I'm just talking. And I'm like, okay, I got all that out. Now I'm like, let's talk. So anyway, I was just processing it with the Lord, and I felt like um, I was honoring God for what had happened, but people didn't know. I had a friend who was invited to Washington, and he did like a little pastor's briefing, but it was like with three or four guys, and I was like, man, well, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go to Washington. Yeah. And I just, I just said it, right? So like maybe a year later, I'm not invited to go to Washington, and we sit like right in front of the podium, and then we get to meet these amazing and incredible people. So God not only heard my heart, but he took it to a whole other level. You know? Yeah, it's amazing. So it's really awesome. But I, had, I felt like I was honoring God for what you had given me. I was like, man, Lord, thank you. This was such a great opportunity. I was just kind of honoring you in my heart. But I kept feeling like I was coming up against some things that I was believing. And I had had in my heart cynicism and an antagonism towards my government. It wasn't that I don't vote any of that stuff. We're not political here for the kingdom, okay? So I don't care what color you are, as long as you line up with the kingdom, or what background you are, what flavor you are. We're, our LA is a kingdom-oriented church. And it was a nonpartisan event, so there were different people that were speaking there. And uh, I was just hearing from the Lord, and I felt like I had been so critical and so cynical of these people that serve in, that, in, in our government. And I had believed a lot of things that weren't true, so I had to repent. I had to honor that. I told the Lord, I said, I repent. I have had the wrong attitude. I have believed wrongly. I have spoken wrongly. And I just, I'm not going to talk that way again. And I'm going to honor because there are men and women, men and women there, that are serving not out of selfish ambition. They're truly serving. And they're truly trying to do something. And they're truly trying to make a difference. And a lot of them are just as frustrated as the American people are. I mean, these guys are I'm just as frustrated as you. We, you know, we'd love to make that happen. We're having, you know, they, they were sharing all that stuff with us. So it's just a wonderful opportunity. So where was I going with this? Well, we're going back to the north. Well, I was going with this. Righteousness in a, in a nation exalts it. Honor to the Lord in a nation exalts it. Dishonor or sort of dismissal, I would say. So to dishonor God and to dismiss the Lord, the nation is going to go in the wrong direction. And you can do a study of that globally. And you can look at the nations around the world that have been directly affected by the gospel. Nations that have had the gospel integrated into the arteries of its, of, its, of its land and integrated into the arteries of its government for any period of time. And those nations are the ones that are most blessed. The ones that do not bear the blessings of nations are those who have denied the blessing of God or who have never really encountered the gospel. And there are a lot of nations that are actually bringing the gospel in there's a couple nations in Africa, and they've actually invited pastors to come in and say, show us how to organize this government according to God's way. And I guarantee you, in 10 years, these governments are going to take a complete pivot if they can hold that course. If they can move away from the way that they have been governing, and they will take the advice of these men that are coming in, they're inviting in, and they will move their nation in that direction, the whole atmosphere of that nation is going to change. It's 100% guaranteed. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's not, a, that's not a poem, that's a promise. 
If you will honor me, and your government will honor me, I will honor that land. It's just a fact. And so here we see this northern kingdom that they have completely dishonored God, and we see them in complete despair and in complete darkness. And here's the good news. Jesus sent Elijah there, who's now followed by Elisha, but he sent Elijah there. God sent hope into hopelessness. These people are in a hopeless situation, they're in a dark situation, they're not even asking for it, and Jesus sends it. They're not going, Lord, give us hope. They don't even, God's not even in their grid. They're not even thinking about God in any way. And the Lord sends hope into hopelessness. The Lord sends light into darkness. There again, we see his nature. He's that good. He reaches for you even when you're not reaching for him. He's looking for you even when you're not looking for him. Who does that? Who does that? Yeah. There's no God in the world, no God that's been created by men. All of the, all of the quote unquote gods and religions are false. If they have any power at all, they're empowered by devils. But they're all false and they're all created. And every god and every man-made system or every demonic-made system has a system where the god must come, must, this god that we serve, he sees you. He comes for you. He looks for you. He notices you when you're not there. He knows you when no one else knows you. He loves you when no one else loves you. He always loves you. His love is always towards you. There's no one like that. When you start understanding him that way, you can't do anything but honor him. You can't do anything but love him. You can't do anything but stand in awe. And like I feel like overwhelmed by your kindness. I feel overwhelmed by your goodness. That's the attitude. Come on, man. Come on. He's that good. That's the revelation that pivots the believer. That's the revelation that transforms the believer. Is when we understand him that way. When you understand that you are loved and you cannot be separated from his love and he's for you even when you're against you, and you start getting that, and you can't fail. You can't fail. The only way you fail is if you quit. You have supernatural success all over you. You have supernatural favor all over you. And the very thing the devil is trying to do is suppress that. And how does he suppress it? Through lies. I just had a guy told me, Nikki, you guys know Nikki, love Nikki, pray for Nikki, put blessing on Nikki, sitting down, really struggling. He just turned 65, okay? And he feels like, plays over. I'm like, who told you that? I'm like, who told you that? Where in the world are you getting that information from? I'm like, you read your Bible? And Mickey, I'm telling him, I'm like, Mickey, I'm going to tell you things you already know. And Mickey doesn't know, the guy doesn't know his work. And I said, so okay, you're 65, you're not where you want to be. You know what that means? You're down in the fourth quarter, that's all it means. The game is still on. That's all it means. That's all it means. You have the opportunity to go into one of the most golden years of your life, one of the most golden seasons of your life. And so there's favor on him, there's anointing on him, there's calling on him, and the enemy wants to suppress it and wants to take the piece off the table and tell him it's over. Well, who told you that? Jesus didn't tell you that. He's not saying that. I told him, believe God. Give him back your disappointments. Give him back what you, what you feel like you wanted. Give it back to him and ask God to give you a new vision for this season of your life. If you read your Bible, some of the most successful people, it was in the last part of their life that they became successful. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we have a culture that values you. The, the, the scripture values experience. Amen. Crickets. We have a culture that values you. The scripture values experience. Amen. Timothy says, commit these things to what? Faithful men who will be able to teach others. Experienced people. Give them these things that they may go. But our culture, the enemy uses the culture against the church itself and suppresses and says, you're irrelevant. If you're over 35, you're irrelevant. 
If you're over 40, you're irrelevant. Well, who told you that? Who told you that? Anybody ever heard of Derek Prince? Yeah. A couple of you? Okay, he's, you know, was real popular maybe 20 years ago. But the guy started a radio ministry when he was 60 years old. No one had ever heard of Derek Prince outside of a few small churches and a few little things that he had done. At 60 years old, he started a radio ministry, and for the next 15 years of his life, he became world-renowned. Let me just let that sink in. At 60, not at 30, not at 25, not at 45, at 60 years old, this guy stepped into a more fuller part of his ministry, or a more fuller call of his destiny. But do we hear that in our culture? Of course not. Go play golf. You know, retire. I was just telling Mickey, I said, it's not about retire, refire. That's what it is. We're not retiring, we're refiring for another season. Amen. Where, where are you? You want to retire? Okay, retire. But you got one at that, you're going to stand before him. And if you're satisfied with what you've done with your life or how the Lord has used you, then go, you know, go, go on a ship and drift around the world for a while. But it's for me, I'm not. You know, I'm going to run through the line to my last breath. <laughs> Where are you? He's worthy of everything. No one, these things are lies and they're suppressions. And they're meant to keep you from who you truly are. They're meant to keep you. You have favor, you have destiny on you. And you have to start seeing yourself as that. My, my beloved daughter, I told her, I said, you're favor. So your friends didn't give you that job. You got that job because it seemed so completely out of the ordinary for you to just get shifted to that position for it to happen so quickly. Because I said, the Lord sees you. That wasn't some, you know, side person. It goes, oh, that person noticed you because the Lord caused them to notice you. That person recognized you because they recognized the favor. There's something about Rosie. I just like Rosie. I don't know why I like Rosie. I don't know. You know, Rosie would be great for this job. Oh, hey, that's a great idea. I like Rosie, too. She didn't get that job because people liked her. She got that job because there's favor on her life. Amen. She got that favor because God loves her, sees her, understands where she is, and is working to take her to another place. One of the levels of tremendous blessing for her family. Tremendous blessing, so be blessed. But it's because of favor. You have favor on your life. The north had lost their favor because they left the Lord. But God sends light into darkness. Elisha is now following in the footsteps of Elijah. A predecessor, somebody who came before Elijah, so a predecessor is a guy named Samuel. Anybody ever heard of Samuel? Yeah. Anybody at all? So Samuel was the first of the seers. It can be argued that he's the first of the prophets, but technically he's the first of the seers. Moses, again, very technical. We can argue either way. Moses was the first of the prophets. Moses spoke and heard and intimacy with, you know, Bible references him as a prophet. So, but if you really want to get spiritual, uh, it, uh, Samuel was not only the first of the prophets, he was the first of a certain kind of prophets. He was a seer. So he would begin to see in the spirit, understand in the spirit, begin to speak from a different place where Moses was more encountering with God in more of a personal way. Samuel did it differently. Samuel started schools for the prophets. So Samuel started these schools to raise people up to become prophets in order that the ministry of the Lord would expand in the nation. And it's arguably, it's not arguably, it's factual that the majority of the Old Testament prophets came through the school of the prophets that Samuel started. So in other words, we think, well, God just called them to be a prophet. They started, showed up and just started prophesying. No, they went to school. They went to a school. They were trained and how to prophesy, the right way to prophesy, how to discern, how to hear, how to write, how to speak. It's probably a good idea that you guys carry a scribe around with you. That's why every prophet had a scribe. 
And when Isaiah said, oh, hold on a second, the Lord's coming home, i got a word. We're not like that, we're a little different. So they were relying upon the coming and the going of the Holy Spirit. We, are, we have an ever-present reality. Holy Spirit's with us always. Right? It's called visitation as opposed to habitation. Church is still in a visitation mindset. Gotta labor. Oh God, visit us! Oh God, visit us! You're in the wrong attitude. What you need to do is manifest what's already given to you. Manifest the habitation. Begin to unleash worship and stir the deep waters that are already within you. You don't have to wait for God to come in some holy visitation. You say, doesn't he do that? Yes, but the key to the whole, the key to the New Testament believer is not visitation, it's habitation. And we don't understand habitation. We don't understand that we already have it. You're carrying it. The kingdom's in you. The power is in you. You may not know what to do with it. You may not even recognize it. You may notice it as this little fluttering thing from time to time. That's why God Paul told Timothy, fan that, fan that into a fire. Take that and fan it. That thing that you sense, that impartation that you perceive, that power that's within you, don't just go, oh, that's nice and oh, what was that? You know what I'm saying? What is that? What is it that's moving in you? When I first started getting filled with the Spirit, I could feel a movement in me. I was like, and at first you're kind of cool, it's weird. Then I started going, oh, that's cool. And I started going more, more, more. And don't just move me, move my mind, clear my mind. Show me. Let me see. Let me hear. Let me feel. Let me experience. Elevate me. That's the difference. I started with heart with what I was. I was fanning into flame the thing that he had imparted. Most of us, we put a lid on it, try to snuff it. Think about the Holy Spirit. You snuff it, and all of a sudden, boom, he pops right back up. So a lot of Christians are running around trying to trying to snuff snuff out the Spirit every chance they get. Why not fan it? Why not say, okay, we'll take you there? What can the what can there pull this power that's in you? What can it do? You're in business? I'm a brother. None of this I shared for service. I'm not even on this, man. It's so I'm not really talking. You're in business? You have access to the mind of Christ. Jesus will show you insights and revelations and abilities on how to do your business in a way that nobody can see. He will reveal things to you. That's what you have. That's what's been given to us. He'll show you how to relate to your children. He'll show you how to relate to your job. He'll show you not only how to relate to your job, here's the better one. He'll show you how to relate to you. Most people have a hard time relating to themselves. And they can't relate to themselves. That's why they're so dysfunctional in relating to others. And they're so dysfunctional in relating to the Lord because they don't know how to properly relate to themselves. And if you will let the Holy Spirit show you, he will. I have a son, my awesome son, big dude, awesome kid. Drove me nuts when I was raising him. Very challenging. Love him. Awesome. Have a great relationship with him. But when he was younger, I had never experienced, I didn't grow up, I, you know, Sherry was more acclimated to that personality than I was. I didn't know that kind of personality. I would be like, Lord, what am I doing? You need to help me. This kid is like, you know, he's just very strong-willed. He's very determined. He's super focused. He, he'll tell you what time it is. Okay? Life's very laid back. And he jumps right into spiritual things. So, but he'll, he'll tell you. You don't have to worry about what he's thinking. He'll tell you. Okay? And so I would be like, Lord, help me. What do I do with it? And so I didn't know how to raise my son. Okay? Clue mom, if you don't know what you're doing, ask Jesus. That's that's the first rule of all things. And so I'm asking the Lord, I'm like, Lord, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And sure, and I went back and forth. What are you doing? Let's talk more. And I heard the Lord go to me. The first thing you need to do is you need to begin to thank me 
for your strong little son. <laughs> so I'm asking him, how do I raise him? And Jesus goes, first, you need to thank me because I have given you a strong little son. And he told me, the world will know that that boy lived. This kid is going to impact somewhere, someplace, sometimes, something. That's Maybe not global, but wherever he is, because of the nature that I've given him, he's going to do something great. And your job is, is to love. thank me. And your job is to honor me. And your job is to operate towards him as I show you. You are not, and I hope like the Lord told me, you are not to stifle him. You are not to publicly shame him. And the Lord was telling me all of these things. And I'm like, well, what do I do? It's like, just commune with him. Talk with him. Coach him. This is how, that's exactly what I do. That's exactly how I handle my son. I handle him like that. I don't publicly rebuke him. We have a conversation. You know, we talk about things. We, right? that's, how I, that's how I do it. It's an amazing thing of how, but I wasn't smart enough to know that. You know, I would be like, you know, because that's how I was raised, right? You know what I'm saying? Some of you know what I'm But God will give you wisdom in the worst of circumstances. He'll show you how to get things done. This is what we have. This is what's available to us. So we have these prophets, and they're, they're really being blessed. I'll paraphrase it for you. They're really being blessed. The ministry's growing. Elijah now is continuing the schools of the prophets in the north. So Elijah's not just there by himself. He's saying, look, we got to multiply this thing. We need to change this nation. We need to transform this. And so Elijah starts the school for the prophets, and the, and the school is really growing. Because people would rather have hope than hopelessness. People would rather have light than darkness. So everybody's like, hey, dude, I want, I want in. I want in. Help me. I'm pray with me. I want, to, I want to walk with the Lord. And so the, the, the ministry there is growing. And they're like, look, we need a bigger place. This little shack that we got meeting in is too small. Let's build a bigger place. Can we build this place? And I was just like, yeah, go for it. So they go down by the Jordan. If I said the Jordan, very important. And they start building a house. And so they're all down there and they're cutting. They're cutting trees and they're cutting trees. And so one dude's just kind of like whistling while he's working, swinging the axe, and he doesn't pay any attention. And the axe plate fly with the head of the axe falls off and goes into the water. Okay? So he loses the axe. The axe head sinks into the water. Elijah shows up, he goes, hey, the axe had thrown the water, the last master was borrowed, it doesn't belong to me, what are we going to do? And Elijah goes over to a tree, cuts off a branch, throws it in the water, the axe head floats, and he tells him to reach down and pick it up. Very curious story, right? And people are like, what does this mean? Why is that story even in the Bible? And what, what is the relationship with that? And you know, there's a lot of different people, like, don't lose your edge, always keep your mind on the edge, you know, don't lose your edge, I've heard a bunch of different stories on it. But I'm going to take it in a more prophetic direction because everything about a prophet is prophetic. So Elijah's expanding the ministry through the schools. He's expanding the ministry. We too are called the expanded ministry. Next slide. So the Acts had prophetic symbolism. Everybody say this to me. Prophetic symbolism. Acts had, so the Acts is prophetic, prophetically symbolic of judgment. It's also mentioned in the same context in Deuteronomy, but this one's really clear. Deuteronomy is there, and you can see it, but this one's clear. It says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree which does not bear fruit will be cut down from the fire. So we have the axe mirrored as a symbol of God's judgment, right? Water is symbols of what? What does water mean? So the axe head flies off the guy's hand and goes in the water. What's the water mean? The man's heart, or the soul of the man, is the actual translation, is like deep water. The Jordan, what's the significance of the Jordan? The Jordan was the place of deliverance into God's promises. He casts a stick into the water. Now, if you're going to use a stick, the first thing that's going to occur to me is like, well, let's just use the axe handle. 
You know what I'm saying? That's like a stick. I don't think I'd go over though. Let's cut off the tree before he goes, throw a stick in there, Kevin. Like, okay, give me the axe handle. You know? I mean, that's kind of like how I would think, but he, but he didn't. He goes and cuts down a branch. Why did he cut down a branch? Because the axe handle was not alive. And he had to use a living branch into the water, and the axe had grow. So what's the significance here? So we have the judgment in the soul of the man. So we have the axe head, the judgment of God is in the water, in the soul of the man. You following me? This is the symbolism. He throws the branch. What's the branch? Zechariah tells us that Jesus is called the branch. Oh. Isaiah 1.11 says he is the branch, or the rod, the branch, same word, of Jesse, the line of David. So we have a branch. We have a consistent theme throughout the scripture where God uses a stick and he uses water to bring something to pass. What God is doing here is he's mirroring the gospel in the Old Testament. And people don't understand it. Well, God's a different God in the Old Testament. Dude, you've never read it. You have no idea what you're talking about. If you think God was any different in the Old than he is in the New, there's different dynamics in play, but the nature of God is still the same. Here he's trying to mirror to them the gospel. He's trying to take a group of Jewish people, these rabbis, these hasids, hasadims, which means devout. He's trying to take these hasadims and he's trying to teach them something. If you've ever watched, anybody ever watch a Jew read the Bible? You ever watch how they Jeremiah? If you really watch how they study scripture, they will take a word and they'll pull it like that. And they'll pull it out into every verb tense, every, they'll, they'll count letters. They'll, they'll count numbers, they'll look at the structure, the way the word is used, they just literally expand the word and try to drill down on its meaning. Then they do something called scriptural comparison. So they'll take all of these different verses and they'll compare scripture, which is the, how the Bible is supposed to be studied, scriptural comparison, and you form a whole. You don't form a whole out of one scripture. You take all of the verses on that subject and you present the whole. That's how, that's how you come up with true revelation or true understanding. You just go, well, that, that verse says that, therefore that's what God's meaning. No. Take that verse and take all of the verses on that and look at that as a whole. And once you see the whole, then you can understand. And if you find a conflict, so if you find one verse that's in conflict, well, then you'll find a reason why it's in conflict, and you'll realize that it's not really in conflict. There's just something you're not seeing. A lot of misunderstanding. A lot of misunderstanding. One of the things you've got to go easy way. A lot of misunderstanding about women. Particularly in the New Testament church. Because we'll take two or three verses over here in the New Testament, and then we'll create this whole doctrine about women in the New Testament. Well, let's take the verses about women, let's take all the verses that Jesus spoke about women, and let's take the Old Testament context of women, and let's put it together, and let's pull it out, and let's see what we're looking at here. And if you'll do that, you'll see an entirely different picture than the one that we portray. Entirely different. Jesus never did it. Jesus never diminished women ever. All he did was elevate them. And in the Old Testament, you find the same thing. Most of the treatment of women in the Old Testament was because of religious dogma. It was never because God told them to. God never told the women to walk three paces behind a man. Where's that? Yet that's what they do. That's what Jews do. You've got to walk three paces behind a man at all times. But where's that? Jesus didn't say that. Where's the court of the women? I always tell them this one. Show me in all three places where God defines the temple, and we'll take the new, both places, both doors technically three. All three places in the Old Testament where God designs the temple, show me one of those passages where God says, make a court for women. Keep the women separated. Show me where that exists. You won't, because it doesn't. It's not there. It's not there. So what do you do with the conflict here? You have to resolve the conflict. Those conflicts are easily resolved. But what we typically do is we take one verse and we create a whole doctrine out of one verse. You can't do that. 
That's why there's so much misguidance within you. You have to take the hold and actually do that. I say, do the work. Do the work. That's right. Do the work. I, I'm trying. Look, I take my job very seriously. Right? I, at least what I speak. I know I'm accountable for what I speak. I, I, I know I represent the Lord, and I'm like, okay, I do not want to misrepresent you. I can do a lot of dumb things, and I can say a lot of dumb things. But one thing I do not want to do is misrepresent you. And if I'm not clear on something, I won't, I won't, I won't expound on it. Because I've not reached that point of clarity yet. doesn't mean I'm not trying to, but I'm not at that point of clarity. But when I am clear, I will say it. And I'll say it with confidence because I've done the work. I've looked at it. I mean, you know, I'm speaking this in confidence because I know what the Scripture is totally saying. I know the whole of the Scripture. And it's saying that. But we take these things and we end, up, we end up doing this. We end up creating doctrines that don't exist. So here we have this idea that the judgment of the, God's judgment, the axe head, is in the water of the man's soul. We get this picture? Mm -hmm. So God is taking three images of a stick with water. We have Moses at the sea. What did he stretch out? Stick. A staff, a stick, right? Not just a staff. Somebody says, well, the stick, had, the stick wasn't a living stick. Moses' stick was a living stick. When he threw it down, what happened? Turn into a snake. Aaron's rod was a living rod. It budded. Amen. The blood, the, the, the rod budded. What God gives us is not dead, it's alive. Amen. The authority and the power of God that we carry, what was been given to his servants, is not dead, it's alive. So here we have Moses' living stick over the waters, boom, waters pass open, and the people are delivered from bondage. They go into the promised land, they come upon a, a, a pool of water, everybody's thirsty, they go to drink the water, the water's bitter. It's called the pools of Mara. Okay? So they go to the pool of Mara. Lord Moses, here's again, I'm going to show you a classic example. Moses goes, ah, okay, I don't know what to do here. You know what I mean? Moses didn't try to figure it out. He just went, not, not sure what I'm doing here, Lord. What do you want me to do? The Lord goes, go cut down a branch and throw it in the water. Well, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Doesn't that make perfect sense? That's what I would do. I purify my water all that way. I just go outside and I dump it over a tree and I just come and drink it. Isn't that how you do it? <laughs> it makes no sense at all. But God told him, cut down the branch and throw it in the water. And when Moses cut down the branch and threw it in the water, the water was healed. The water was free. We have the same thing here. God is doing it three times. Not five, not six, not seven, not eight, not two. Three times. Three is a pretty important number of words, isn't it? Okay, so he does it three times. And it's the rod of Jesse, or the, or the, or the, the branch of Dave, the branch of Zechariah, the branch of Jesse, the rod of Jesse, thrown into the water. And when the, when the water, when the branch of Christ is thrown into the water of your life, into the soul of your life, there's a deliverance from judgment, bitterness, and bondage. Those are the three, three instances. And come on. I know it's a little bit, you know, but I get it. Preach it. The word that he uses for stick is the word estes. Is the root word estes? It's rooted. It's rooted. It's rooted in the word nestes, nestes, which is where we get the word nazar, which is where we get the word nazarene. So the word itself goes back to Jesus's nature. Jesus was called a nazar or a nazarene, not because he was from the town of Nazarene, although that was part of the deal. He was called a nazar because he was the prophetic symbol of the branch that delivers. He's the prophetic symbol of the branch that eliminates judgments and takes away bitterness. Do we get this? Yeah. It's a portrayal of who he is. Yes, it's not just that. It's not just a, uh, and it's not a poem. It's a reality. You have bitterness of soul. Let the Lord cast Himself into the bitterness of your soul. You need judgment and freedom from self condemnation or freedom from sin. Let the Lord cast Himself into your soul. 
key for you. This isn't like, these aren't poems, these are realities. These are promises. And so also you have the Jordan. The Jordan was the place of deliverance. So God was delivering them from judgment on the way into a promised land. That's the picture that's going on here. Next slide. So that's why, if you want to know something about that story, that's also a curious story where Moses throws a tree into the water. But he goes, well, that's kind of weird. Okay, well, God's God. Do, 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 do. You know what he wants you to do? Why did you use a tree? Why were you using a tree? Why? What's that all about? He wants you to ask a question. You know? I don't think water was bitter. He brought the people out. They're bitter water. So, you know, why didn't you tell them to concoct some kind of filtering system? You know what I mean? Some rudimentary filtering system. I don't you know, since they, they were going to do this, we're going to lay out peace now, we're going to filter this three times, we're going to, you know, he tells them to throw a tree in there. That's odd. Then that story with the accent is odd. Very, very odd. But if you understand the prophetic meaning, it makes perfect sense. All of a sudden, it's revealed. And here's why Jesus does not cast pearls before swine. If you do not value his word, he will not reveal to you his word. It'll stay in law form, and you'll read it only on a surface level. But if you will value it, you will engage him, you will begin to seek him. Do the work and ask him, let the Holy Spirit grind on you a little bit, expand your knowledge, he'll reveal it to you. That's right. He'll give it to you if you want. If you don't want it, he'll give it. Come on. Sure. Well, this most Christians are lazy. We just are. You know, we are. Just give us the rules, Kevin. Just give us the rules. I just want the rules. I want the rules. I want the rules. Siri was praying. She said, You don't have to like over our church. I said, What? She said, Liberty. She said, I feel like the Lord just keeps telling me freedom. It starts to like, oh, that's cool. Lord, what does it mean? You watch, here's how it works. Lord, what does it mean to have freedom over this church? What is what are you intending? We're releasing, you're releasing this, we're activating this, we're all this stuff. Maybe it's to show me revelation off of what I got to say. Whoa, there's freedom over our church. <laughs> liberty, liberty, liberty. I don't have a clue what that means. <laughs> I don't have a clue. But I go to him and I listen to him, and I'm like, what does it mean? What are you intending? Not what am I thinking. What are you intending by doing this? And I have to let it marinate it back to me. And then I began to see things, and I began to ask him after he's giving it to me, what do you what what do you want me to do with this? What do you want us to do with this? I'm leading it, but what do you want where do you want us to go with this? You're doing this, but where do you want this to go? How do you want this to roll out? Is there anything different than we're doing that you want to make happen? You see the partnership? This, this is how kingdom comes to earth. It doesn't come to earth by just God going boom and then he goes, shows up and does it for you. It comes through relationship. It comes through covenant. It comes through a hunger for understanding and desire for more. But it requires the work of the soul or the inward working of the spirit and you coming up against the things that you don't believe or your wrong thinking. That's the problem. Most Christians, when we, God will say something, and it doesn't line up with their thinking, so they discount it. Now, could it be that God's actually confronting your thinking? Could that be the issue? Jesus doesn't conform to your thinking. So when he shows you something, and you go, nah. I mean, we just talked about Elijah, he feeds him with ravens. Elijah's cultural thinking was ravens were unclean. Elijah's cultural and religious thinking told him, that he should have nothing to do with ravens because they were an unclean bird. Yet the Lord was sending you ravens. Huh. What was the message there? 
Why is it? It's not about, you know, I'm going to do whatever I want, and I'm going to use what is not acceptable to you to provide for you. I'm going to test you to see if you're going to be. He did the same thing with a, with a Samaritan, with a, a, a widow woman who was a Gentile. He provided to a Jew who's like, get those Gentiles away from me. Yet God used her, a Gentile woman, which is even worse to them, to, the, to their culture. She wasn't just a Gentile, she's a Gentile woman. Even worse. So Elijah comes up and it picks it up for yourself. So watch this. So God takes this judgment, casts a stick in, shows us this mirror, comes up out of the water, and the prophet says, you pick it up. The prophet didn't pick it up for him. Jesus didn't come down and do it. We have to take back the light that Christ has given us. We have to take possession of the light that Jesus has given you. For freedom's sake, Christ has made you free. You must possess it. You must lay hold of it. Stop living your life mirrored by your own fears, mirrored by your own anxieties. Stop living your life mirrored by the way the church tells you you should live. And I'm not talking about righteousness. I'm talking about culturally. I'm talking about religion. Stop living a life based upon all of these things and what a society says you are. Take back the life that Christ has risen for you. He's risen you up. Take it back. Own it. Begin to go, Lord. Okay, I have access to your power, your presence, and your purpose. And everybody goes, woo, we got access to his power, his presence, and his purpose. What do I want you to do with that? I want you to go, Lord. I want you to acknowledge it, and then I want you to go, what is it? Tell me about your power, Lord. She teach me what I don't understand. Then show me what I'm supposed to do with it. Teach me about your presence. You say, well, we know what I'm supposed to do. Do you really? I don't think we do it. So teach me, Lord, more about your presence. Teach me, Lord, how to understand and recognize and be in your presence more. Teach me, Lord, how to walk in purpose. Teach me actually what a purpose is. Teach me the barriers that are in my life and the thinking that is in my life that prevents me from your purpose. Jesus shows up wearing more clothes, ladies and gentlemen. Right? We want more. We want, we want to see this. We want to see his beauty and his glory. That's how we get That's how we get there. You know, it's great to have five points and let's all work on that. That's great. But at the end of the day, we got to get down into the dirt of the relationship. It's one thing to have, somebody said clouds and dirt. It's one thing to have clouds, but there's also dirt involved. You know, there's also hard work involved. There's a, a, a wrestling. So we have to take back what we have lost. We have to take back our, our understanding, take back our life, take ownership of our life. So here's the second part of this chapter. I'm going to break this down for you. Syria is warring with, with Israel. So what's going on here is the Assyrians are the, the sort of the, uh, the dominant uh, army or the um, uh, Israel is actually the, the subordinate nation now. It, Syria, Assyria is ruling them. Well, Israel wasn't kind of doing what they wanted, so Syria brought the army in and was going to go to war with them. And so they're planning to have a war with Israel, and God tells Elisha what the Assyrians are going to do. And so Elisha just kind of strolls into the camp and goes, hey, hey, you listen in. I know you guys are thinking about going down there and putting the camp down by the river, but don't do that because the king of Syria knows you're going to be there, and he's going to ambush you. And this went on like two or three times. So finally, the king of Assyria goes, who's the spy in my camp that keeps telling these guys what I'm doing? And the guy goes, look, there's no spy in your camp, but there's a prophet in Israel. And he hears everything that you say, and he even knows what goes on in your bedroom. Mm. Well, that made me mad. Yeah. Story, he's like, what? He knows what's going on in my bedroom? What? He knows that I like to run across around and run around my bedroom in a body suit. He knows that. <laughs> and he's got to die. That's a coffee in my mouth. So Elijah informs his enemies of the movement. And so he sends an army against Elisha. And they camp around him. And the servant of the man of God, so Elijah's servant, goes out. And he says, there's an army. 
And he says, what are we going to do? Alas, master, what shall we do? And Elijah says, don't fear. They who are with us are more than they who are against us. And Elijah said, Lord, I pray open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and behold, he saw a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire. So Elijah knew there was an angelic army. Elijah knew that what was going on here. What's going on here is you have a servant who is in the presence of power, who is in the presence of purpose, and who is in the, who is in the presence of God himself through the prophet. Yet he is completely unaffected. His first response when everything goes sideways is to look to the natural. That's his first response. Elisha's first response was heavenly minded. He went to the kingdom. He didn't go to himself. He didn't call everybody up. He went to the Lord. He went to go show him, okay, this is what the army says. Lord, what are you saying? The Lord goes, look at the army is around him. And so you have this servant who's blind to the fact of the greater reality. He's blind to the fact of the spiritual world that's already around him. Next slide. That army didn't appear. That army was already there. So what happens here, what I want to point out to you is this. There are many Christians who are completely and totally unaware of the spiritual world. Completely. There are those who are aware of the spiritual world, but never engage in the spiritual world. Okay? And I think what's worse than denying it is accepting it and never doing anything about it. That's worse. It's like people pray. Right? We believe God for miracles. It's worse to believe God and say, well, God creates miracles, but you never see any. It's better to say we believe God for miracles and we keep pressing in even if we fail. That's better than it is to say that. You have people who are not even aware of the spiritual world, and you have people that are aware of the spiritual world but never engage it. Elijah was like that. And here you have a servant who's around it but never is transformed by it. It is completely possible for Christians to be that way. I told us the first service. I said, you're in this room, you're in this atmosphere. It's supercharged. The anointing is in the room. The presence of God is in the room. I lead you in a little prayer. Everybody stand your feet. Everybody does the same. Don't breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. But inevitably, there's somebody in the room that's going to go, and that's what this What does this mean? This is like so dumb. We don't do this in my church, or the church I used to go to. We have a bell bar in my church in Xylophone, you know. Or they just do worship songs really fast with smoke machines and lights that you know, but they don't they don't actually call me to engage in anything. Oh no, I'm not doing it. It's Gehazi. Elijah's latest last servant who lost his position. Gehazi was around Elijah, but unaffected by it. This guy's the same way. He's around the presence, he's around the power, and he's around the purposes of God, but nothing is changing. That's a problem. You understand what I'm trying to tell you? Nothing is changing. And so it's entirely possible to be in the room. And so God calls something out. He says, listen, I want my people to breathe in. And literally what I saw, I didn't even go there. I saw fire coming into people. But I didn't want to go, oh, I'm breathing in fire. I'm breathing in fire. I didn't even take you there. I just said breathe in. And I saw just God just fires filling people. I saw breathing out. I saw just like bags going away. Carts and caravans of like, like, like I saw shipping containers coming out of people. Just do a little exercise of breathing and releasing. Why? Because the anointing's in the room, and the seer is seeing. The one that I'm standing up here, I got the mantle, I'm standing up here, and I'm sharing this with you. The Lord says, I want to do this. So I go, well, that's kind of weird, Lord. I don't know about that. So I got to get up here and get my underwear like David and start dancing in front of you and telling you what, what time it is. This is what the Lord wants. You can all go, shh, that's I'd rather be a fool than be Gehazi. Okay? Gehazi's in an atmosphere of transformation, and he denies it. He's in an atmosphere of power, and he denies it. 
He said an atmosphere of purpose, and he can't bring himself to the point of submitting to it. It's called humility. It's what it is. Humble yourself. Dip in the Jordan. I don't want to dip in the Jordan. Give my life to Jesus. Oh, please, how disgusting. How many the blood? Oh, I gotta get the blood of Jesus over me. Ew. <laughs> Wake up. Our problem is, is we have belief systems that are counterproductive to the things that God wants to do. We want God to conform to what we believe. Well, God doesn't heal anymore. Or God doesn't do miracles anymore. Or God, my, I'm in poverty and I should always be in poverty and all this stuff. No, who told you that? Here we have Elijah striking the soldiers with blindness. So here I'm going to put this one out there. So I'm sure you guys will, some of you will love me, some of you will hate me by the end of the day, but I'm all right with it because I represent Jesus. That's all I want to do is honor him. And this is a great dishonor to him. When we teach things that I'm about to teach you, and I'm going to show you the right, the right understanding of this, this is a great dishonor to him. We say, well, God doesn't afflict anybody with evil. That's true, 100% evil, but wait a minute, Pastor. Now that sickness is from the Lord. Who told you that? Your Bible doesn't tell you that. And then they'll use dumb examples like this one. Well, Elijah struck the soldiers with blindness. Or they'll use this one. Well, Paul had an infirmity. What was his infirmity? Does anybody know? Nobody knows. You can't even tell me that it was a, it was a physical affliction because it doesn't exist. You want to go to a theologian, we'll go to the highest seminary you want, we'll break it down in Greek, and no one can tell you Paul had a physical affliction. But what we do know that he had was he had a spiritual affliction when he would plant a church and the Judaizers would go in there and turn it upside down. So he would plant a church, get the church moving, and then all these religious people would come in there and blow it up. And Paul was like, give me a break, Lord. i got to keep going back there and moving this thing, and then I go again, and they blow it up, and i got to keep going back there. And the Lord says, my grace is sufficient. He says, my charismatic power, that's the word, my charismatic spiritual power is sufficient. And I would argue, could that be that why Paul, when he's, all of a sudden Paul's language begins to change? And he begins to speak to the Corinthian church in an entirely different way than he was before. He said, I didn't come to you with, with, with cunning words. I came to you with demonstration and power. Now, where did he get that from? Because the Lord just told him, my spiritual power is sufficient for the problem that you're facing. Use that. And now, all of a sudden, Paul's like, well, I'm not going to have theological debates. I'm going to come in here and demonstrate power. I'm going to come in here and release glory and activate the presence and let that stand for itself. We use these words like God, God afflicts them with, he afflicted Paul, Paul, Paul was knocked off his donkey and blinded by the Lord. Anybody ever heard that? First of all, there's no donkey. That just shows you how ignorant we are of that story. First of all, he was not on a donkey, and he was not knocked off a donkey. The Bible says he fell to the ground, but he was not on a donkey. Okay? And the second thing it says is that he was struck with blindness, but you have to understand the Greek words. Two different Greek words in play here, people. First one is the word blephon. Say with me, blephon. The use of that word means to be blinded as by smoke. How do we know? Because the Greek tells us that, and we not only know that the Greek tells us that, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, all use the word blephon as being as a state of seeing but disoriented. All of them. So not only do we have it from the biblical narrative, we have it from the, from the poetic narrative of the later Greek writers. They use the same word in the same way. Are we clear on that? Yeah. I know I'm getting real theological with you, but this is important. The word tiflos means to be physically blind. If tiflos is used only by itself, it means physical blindness. If tiflos is used in conjunction with, with blephon, it means he's blinded but by smoke. Right? So when Paul was blinded, 
God did not strike him with physical blindness. Because the word teflon or tephos was never used. Nor is the word tephos used when Elijah is striking the soldiers. They were not struck with physical blindness. They were struck as by smoke. They were disoriented in haze. Elijah led a whole army three miles. It's kind of hard to lead a whole army three miles when everybody's physically blind. He led them from where they were to, to the presence of the king. It was three miles away. And if everybody's blind, then you're going to have a hard time leading one person, let alone a company of them. But, that, but the language does not support that. So when people say, oh, that's the way it was, and when Paul was praying for it, something but scales fell off his eyes. You guys know the story? Mm-hmm. He didn't say he was healed of internal blindness, because that's not the case. We misrepresent God's character, and we use these dumb things as examples when we don't even know what we're talking about. And it is a complete affront to his nature. Do not carry my name in vain. That is a command. We carry his name in vain by misrepresenting him. We're carrying his name in an empty way. So if we really want to understand, a lot of people should shut up before they start talking about things that they don't know and misrepresenting the character of God. I speak it because I've done the work. I can say it with boldness and confidence because I've done the work. So when people tell me that, oh, pastor doesn't understand it. Paul's knocked off a donkey and blind God the Lord. There's a clear example of God putting a physical affliction on him. I'm like, yeah? Have you done the study? Have you looked at it? Have you gone into the word? Have you looked at the context and the words that are coming out of that story? It's not what you said. Not popular in today's culture, but it's true. God does not afflict anyone with evil. No one. It is not his nature. He has never shown us to be that way. He's a good God. He does not know. Things happen, and people are afflicted, but they're afflicted for a whole lot of different reasons other than what the Lord has done. The Lord is not doing it to you. Sin has caused the problem. Sin, generational, genetic brokenness from sin. Yes, there's blindness, but it comes from a whole lot of other reasons other than the Lord. True. He leads them to Joram. We have two issues of blindness. We have the blindness of the believer, the servant, in the presence, but completely unaware. Supernatural reality. Completely unaware. We are natural, and Jesus' world is what? Thank you very much. You're a good church. Love you guys. You guys can listen (laughs) <laughs> Somebody got that. So there's supernatural. We have access to his world. Elijah's not only aware, he's not only aware of the world, but he walks in it. We not only have to be aware of that world, we have to begin to walk in it. Even, say with me, even if we don't know what we're doing. Even if we're clumsy and foolish, we need to walk in it. That's right. We need to learn to walk in the Spirit, begin to walk in the things that God has for us, and all the things He lays before. Even if you don't know what you do, you have to give yourself permission to become that person. You have to give yourself permission to become that person, even if you're dysfunctional at it. It's our problem. We're so worried about what other people would think. Who cares? Jesus is trying to tell me to walk into something while I look like a fool. Oh well, I won't look like a fool forever. Eventually, I'm going to do it. You ever watch a kid ride a bike? Right. How about rollerblading? You ever tried rollerblading? Mm. Wear, wear handguards and helmets is my suggestion. So intuition, the blindness of the believer, then we have a bad situation. It looks very natural. Then he goes to God. So what we have here with the, with the servant is we have, say with we'll religion without relationship. And we have relationship without revelation. That's the issue. So we have religion without relationship. So we have the servant. He's operating in a religion, but he doesn't have relationship. Then we have people also that operate with relationship, but they don't have revelation. Next slide. 
Blindness of the unbeliever. They're brought before Ooh. the king. They expected and deserve judgment. Did you know what I mean? All we got is the prayer. All we got is the prayer. Where does Elisha go? Elisha leads the blind yeah. unbeliever where? To the king. See the picture? Right. Joram was the king. Joram doesn't know what he's doing. Joram wants to know what he's bringing these guys here for. Okay, so Joram's like a full representation of Jesus. But Elisha is the right representation. So he's bringing the people. Joram's like, uh, should I kill him? Is that what you want to do? And Elisha goes, don't kill him, feed him. Feed them, give them water, and what else? Set them free. See the imagery? So he brings them to them. And so the unbelievers' eyes come to the Lord, and they open their eyes, expecting and deserving to be judged. And what they receive is mercy and kindness. He shows kindness to them. And then what ends up happening is these men, don't, that, that group of men never went up against Israel again. They went away free. They were no longer adversaries of the Lord. They went free. Jesus told the, told the Pharisees that if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say that you see, therefore your sin remains. Ignorance is not the problem. Arrogance is the problem. Being ignorant, that's never a problem with Jesus. He doesn't care. He's just going, I don't know what I'm doing. He's, he's cool with that. Then great. It's awesome. I can work with you guys. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> but when you're arrogant, you think you know everything. We have a problem. And that's what he told them. He fed them, he sent them away. So here's my question. We're gonna pray. We're gonna do a prayer. Don't we're gonna say well, don't be. And I feel, and 
I feel. I will spirit feel. I will receive. I will receive his voice. His voice. I will discern. I will discern his voice. I will obey. I will obey his voice. I will not. I will not muddle his voice. His voice with confusion. With confusion. And I will not. And I will not muddle his voice. His voice with my own preferences. My own preferences. I will activate. I will activate the kingdom. With the kingdom. With the spirit's purposes. And with the spirit's purposes. Jesus name. In Jesus' name. You believe that? Yeah. I believe that. You guys, the prayer team available for you guys if you need prayer, if you need encouragement. You just want to dare Jesus to have a prophetic word for you. I can pray for you for that. But I want to just bless you one more time. Get this cover elevate right after you guys want to be in there. I'll be there for like five minutes. Let me just bless you. Just receive it. Turn up your heart. Just let him love you. Let him pour with you. You're created to be able to be blessed by him. That's the whole reason he created you. He's generous and he's good. He wants you to mirror him. He wants you to be like him. But he also wants you to draw your life from him as well. So the Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord causes space to shine down upon you. The Lord be gracious to you in every way. And give you peace. And may you forever be in his favor. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We love you. See, it's not working. I come down, I move it, nothing. Come down, I move it, nothing. I'm such a rocker at heart. Like I that can't do it. Just gets me every time. All right, Cher. See, nothing. Uh, there it goes. Finally. And...